You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Church, this morning, my question for all of us is how many of us are living the Christian life to not lose rather than to win? How many of us are living the Christian life to not lose? How many of us are living the Christian life saying, oh, if I just don't make any big mistakes, then I'll be all right? Oh, if I just avoid these sins over here, then I'm going to be okay. Oh, well, well, as long as I just make it, I just got to make it. As long as I I don't say the wrong words, as long as I don't get too drunk, as long as I don't do X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to be okay. How many of us pay more attention to the do not commands rather than the do commands in Scripture? How many of us play not to lose instead of play to win? That's the invitation for us this morning in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is going to call his warriors, his people, to join him in the forward advancement of his kingdom. To go on the attack. To pick up our swords and our shields and go on the attack. That's what we're talking about this morning. Matthew 16, we're going to start in verse 13. If you need a Bible, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so this is important, all right? So whenever you read uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you need to pay special attention to the place where things are happening. Jesus uses place, location, cities so strategically in his earthly ministry. So he's here with his disciples, his 12 followers, in a city called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi at that time is the idolatry capital of the world. So they, uh, for years, were the place that people would come to worship false gods. So first it was the Canaanite people who would come and worship the false god of Baal. Then after the Canaanites, there were the Greeks who would worship the false god Pan. Then after that, this is where uh, Caesar, who was an emperor who thought he was God, would rule. And so this is the capital of false gods, the capital of idol worship. And here's Jesus and his disciples, and he asked them this question, verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he asked his disciples, who do people think the Son of Man is? And and Son of Man is how Jesus uh, refers to himself often because it's a reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel, a prophecy in the book of Daniel that Jesus, the the Christ, the Son of God, would be the Son of Man. It's referring to his, his humanity, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so he says, who do people think that I am? You've been traveling with me, right? You've seen all my miracles. You've seen all the different things that I've done. Who do the people say that I am? What rumors are you hearing about me? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This is unsurprising. A lot of people in that day thought that Jesus was one of the Old Testament prophets come back from the grave. So they thought it was John the Baptist who we read in scripture was beheaded. They thought maybe John the Baptist came back or, or Elijah, another uh, who was an Old Testament prophet. Maybe he's come back. Verse 15, Jesus changes the question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus starts by saying, okay, who do these people think that I am? Who are you hearing that I am? And today in the world we live in, there are a hundred different people that would give a hundred different answers to that question, right? If you ask them, who do you think that Jesus is? You might hear a good teacher, right? He's a good teacher. He said some good things. He had some good morals, some good values that we should live by. 
Other people might say that he was a good prophet, right? He, he spoke some truths. Other people might say that, well, he was an important historical figure. He lived, but, but that's kind of it. All that stuff he said about being the son of God, that's, that's not really real. Other people, if you ask them today, who do you think Jesus is, they'd say that, that he was oppressive or that his morals or philosophies were, are outdated. Some would even say he's a lunatic. Who could claim to be God? Why would his followers claim that he came back from the grave? You can ask 100 people, you get 100 different answers, and Jesus speaks through that noise to his disciples and to us, and he asks us the question, no, 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 who do you say that Jesus is? Church this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Let me look at this another way. Who Jesus is and who you say that Jesus is is the most important question that you can ever answer in your entire life. Is he Lord? Is he king? Is he just a good man who said some good things 2,000 years ago? Is he crazy? Is he a lunatic? Who is he? doesn't matter who the people around you say that he is. It doesn't matter who your friend group says that he is. It doesn't matter who the people at work say that he is. It doesn't matter who the people next door say that he is. Who do you say that Jesus is? At some point in your life, you have to answer that question. At some point in your spiritual journey, you have to answer the question, who do I think that Jesus is and what does that mean for my life? I'm going to come at it from another way. Who do you think that Jesus is is a different question than who does your mama think that Jesus is? Who do you think that Jesus is is a different question than who does your grandmama or your granddad say that Jesus is? It's a different question than who does Pastor Ant say that Jesus is? Who do the deacons say that he is? Who's your life group leader say that he is? No, Jesus says, no, first and foremost, you have to decide who do you say that Jesus is? Is he king? Is he Lord? Is he ruling and reigning? You have to answer that question and then decide what does that mean for my life? He asked his disciples, who do you say that Jesus is? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied. I love good old Peter, right? Always speaks first. Sometimes it means he has to put his foot in his mouth, but here he's right. He replies, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. If you're someone who likes to write in their Bible, underline that word living. That's so crucial here. You are the son of the living God. You are king. You're the boss. And notice, he doesn't just say, you're, you're Jesus, Right? You're, the, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. He says you're the son of the living God. You see, every other false god in Caesarea Philippi was not a living God. It was a dead God. It was a clay figurine. They were made by human hands. They couldn't talk. They couldn't save anybody. They couldn't do anything. The people wrongly believed that they were living, but they weren't. They were dead. They were little clay things that the people had made. And Peter says, no, you're the son of the living God. What Peter is saying is not only an affirmation of who Jesus is, but also a denial of anything and everyone else who thinks that it was God. Right. He says, no, you are the king, nothing else is. You are the Lord, nothing else is. You are the true God, nothing else is. You see, what Peter is doing in verse 16 is he is on the attack. He's fighting. He's saying, no, nothing else is king, nothing else is Lord. It's an offensive maneuver. So I uh, spent three years in Louisville, Kentucky with my wife before we moved back to Columbia. And the greatest boxer of all time is from Louisville. Anybody know who that is? Louisville? Muhammad Ali. Close. Muhammad Ali, greatest boxer of all time. Right? And Muhammad Ali's strategy when he was a boxer was called the rope-a-dope. Anybody know what the rope-a-dope? So what the rope-a-dope is is Muhammad Ali would basically spend the first nine rounds back in the corner just dancing. Right, just dancing, and people would try to hit him, and so it was called the rope-a-dope because he'd push himself against the rope, and I guess he would 
dope. I don't know. Is that what that's called? But he would just dance and dance. And his whole goal was that eventually this guy is going to wear himself out. And then I'm going to step into the middle and I'm going to take him down. And so what Peter's doing is, hey, enough of the rope-a-dope. You're the son of the living God. So let's get to war. Let's attack. Let's fight. Let's go. He's saying, no, nothing else is king. And his, his affirmation, Jesus is king, so nothing else is. Jesus is king, so nothing else can be king. It's an attack. That's what we're invited into this morning. So y'all talked about this a little bit last week. When you stepped foot into this building this morning for worship and to sing to Jesus, you made a move of attack. I don't know if you knew that, but you stepped in and made an offensive maneuver. When Courtney and Brent led us in worship, they're inviting us to join them in attacking the kingdom of darkness. In attacking the domain of darkness. What that means is that when you sing and when you lift your hands and when you clap and when you shout, you are attacking everything and anything who would claim or try to claim the throne of Jesus. You're on the attack. So when you sing words like death could not hold you down, you are the risen king. What you're saying and proclaiming is that Jesus is the only king and death is not. My grief is not. My sorrow is not. Death isn't king. Jesus is king. When we sing name above all names, worthy of all praise, what we're saying is that he is the only one who is worthy of our worship because he is the only king. My temptation is not king. My desires are not king. Jesus is king. When we, we'll sing like we will at the end of this sermon. When we sing the line, our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring in power and fighting our battles, and every knee will bow before him. When we say every knee, we mean every knee. It's a sign of attack. We're on the attack. When we gather together and we sing and we clap and we shout and we worship, we are saying God and Jesus, they're the only king. The, the Trinity, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, he is the only king. Nothing else is king. Jesus is king. So when you come in here and you sing and you worship, you're saying Jesus is king. My wallet is not. Jesus is king. My desires are not Jesus is king. My kids are not. Jesus is king. My boss is not. Jesus is king. My anxiety and my fear and my worries, they're not. Jesus is king. My suffering is not. Jesus is king. My grief and my pain are not. We're saying Jesus is king and nothing else is. So we get the chance to do every single Sunday when we, we get in here. This is why it's so hard to get here on a Sunday morning. You feel that? right? So hard to get up on time. Right. Saturday mornings, it's like, I can't not wake up at 6 a.m., but Sundays? <laughs> Sundays, it's like 11, 11, 30, 12. That's why I love that you guys started at 11. We start at 9 downtown. It's awful. <laughs> it's bad. It's so hard, right? Because it's a battle. It's a fight. The enemy does not want you to be here because he knows when you step right. foot and you sing that you're telling your heart, no, Jesus is king, and you're telling everyone else around you, Jesus is king, and he doesn't want you to proclaim his goodness, and his kingship, and his lordship. You have other opportunities to attack as well, so not just worship. This happens every time you step foot into life group. Right, when you step foot into life group, when you say Tuesday night is about Jesus, you're saying that Tuesday night doesn't get anything else. Tuesday night gets me worshiping the king. So it's a declare of attack. It's a move of attack. It's an offensive move. When you step foot in that door, you're saying Jesus is king. What I wanted to do tonight, veg out and watch Netflix go to the game, whatever it may be, we're saying that's not king, Jesus is king, and so I'm gonna give him these hours. Yeah. When you step into life group and you confess sin, 
and you turn to God and you repent and you turn away from your sin, that is a move of attack. You're saying Jesus is king. My temptations are not king. Jesus is king. After the service, when you guys go into Pinehurst and you go and you ask people, hey, can I pray for you? And you go on prayer walks. You are declaring, hey, Jesus is king of this neighborhood. The devil is not. And Satan is not. Jesus is the king of Two Notch Road and Satan is not. This is not the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom of the king, the true king, Jesus, who's Lord. When you wake up early and you set your alarm before you have to go to work so that you can pray and read your Bible, you are declaring war. You're going on the attack. You're saying Jesus is king. He is king. I'll give you one more. Parents in the room, when you put your phone down and you engage with your children in conversations about God and life, that is a declaration of attack. That Jesus is going to be king over your house. Nothing else will. Let's keep going. Verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the king. Jesus is like, boom, got it right, 100 points. God must have told you the answer, which I don't know about you, but if I pray, I want Jesus to respond with, God must have told you that, that's good. I love that. He says, God told you the answer, Peter, 100%. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So there's so much going on here. Let's break it down. So first, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock. So there's debate over what that actually means, and there's kind of three options that you can believe. So the first option is that uh, on the rock, the rock is uh, Peter. So, So Jesus is saying, Peter's the rock that I'm gonna build my church on. And people that believe this say, if you look at Acts, that's what he does, right? Peter's one of the first church fathers. He's one of the first people to start the church. Other people say that the rock is Jesus. So when Jesus says this rock, he's meaning himself. He is the rock the church is going to be built on. Still others, third option is that the rock is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. So the church will be built on the reality that Jesus is the Christ. And there's flexibility to believe all three. So you can believe any of those three. I, I personally believe it's the confession, but you, you're free to believe whichever one. But he says, on this rock, and then the next statement is so crucial. On this rock, I will build my church. So let's break it down, four parts. First, he says, I, Jesus, Jesus, he is going to do it. Jesus is the one who builds. Jesus is the one who reigns. Jesus is the one. He builds it. He moves it forward. Secondly, he says, I will build. I will build. So I don't don't know if you know this or not, but when Jesus says he's going to do something, it's money in the bank, right? He is going to do it. It's a guarantee. When Jesus says, I will build, he is going to build. This is what he does, right? So he he gathers after his death, he gathers his 11 disciples because Judas betrayed him. So now there's 11. And he says, go, make disciples of all nations. And they they scatter and 11 become 1,100, and 1,100 become 11,000, and 11,000 become millions and millions and millions till we see in Revelation at the end of all things when Jesus returns, there's millions of people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping God because Jesus said, I will do it. I will build my church. I will build it. It will happen. If Jesus says it's going to happen, it's a guarantee. It's going to happen. Aunt and I were talking about 
this message getting ready for Sunday, and we were talking about uh, this reality that you can't stop Jesus, and uh, we're in the middle of Ant's office like he does, and he just starts going, right, just preaching. You're like, you're not even on stage. You're in your office. Why are you preaching, Pastor Ant? He just starts going, and he says, Tim, when Jesus says that God, when Jesus says he will do something, what he means is that he'll do it, and when he says his kingdom is coming, that means you can't stop it, and you can't contain it, and you can't slow it down, and you can't derail it, and you can't even pause it. You can't change the timing of it. He says, when Jesus says, I will build my kingdom, it means he will build his kingdom. He will do it. That's the second thing. Third, he says, I will build. And then he says, my, my. Jesus makes sure that we know whose church it is, right? That it's God's church, that it's God's kingdom, that it's not our kingdom, it's God's kingdom. When Jesus comes in, he doesn't join our team, we join his team. It's God's church. It's, it's his church. He is the one who rules and reigns over it. Let me say it this way because, because I love you. Some of us have made a habit of being mad at God for not blessing our kingdom, wow. for not blessing the work of our hands. And we failed to realize, no, Jesus says, I will build my kingdom, not our kingdom. He'll build his church, not our church. And that's the last thing he says. He says, I will build my church, big C church, the people of God. So Jesus will constantly over and over throughout history. He's done it for 2,000 years, and he'll do it for years and years more until he returns. He will bring people into his church. And people are going to believe, and they're going to trust, and they're going to put their faith in him. He's going to soften hearts. People are going to trust the true joy and true peace that only comes from Christ. Jesus will build his church his people, his kingdom, in verse 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a loaded phrase. So that, that word gates uh, here in the original language in the, the Greek is the word pule, uh, and it refers to the exit gate of the city. So it's the gate that people would exit out of. So if you're going to Walmart, it's the door on the left-hand side, which says exit, and that you should only use to exit. Please, we can do this, right? The enter door is for entering, and the exit door is for entering. Please, right? The worst. It's the exit gate. And then in Scripture, when, when it talks about gates, what it's often talking about is not a physical gate, but it's referring to power and authority. So here's what Jesus is saying when he says the gates of hell will not prevail. Is he's saying, I will build my church and the power and authority of hell will not keep people from going out and coming to me and being in my kingdom. He says the, the power and authority of hell will not stop people from leaving the kingdom and domain of darkness and joining the kingdom of God. They will not prevail It's gates. And so what that means is that it's the gates of hell. That means we are on the attack. It means hell is on the defensive. That means the exit gate of hell will not prevail against the forward movement of the people and kingdom of God. Yeah. Right? We are taking the fight to the kingdom of darkness. We are taking the fight to the domain of darkness. Their gates are the ones in trouble, not ours. Yeah. Right? Their exit gates are the ones that will not prevail. Because the people of God are moving and they're going. And what this means is that if you are here today and you trust in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, that means that the exit gates of hell did not prevail in your life. Yeah. If you know someone, your, your friend, your, your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, if they put their faith in Jesus, that means the exit gates of hell did not prevail in their life. 
Every baptism story that we celebrate, when we celebrate baptism, every story we hear of, I was living this way, I wanted this stuff, and now I'm going after this, and I want this instead, that is a story and a proclaiming that the exit gates of hell did not prevail in that person's life. They have left the kingdom of darkness, and they have joined the kingdom of God. God will do it. He will bring people to himself. People will get saved. People will be forgiven. God will rescue people and build his church. That's a guarantee, and we know this because of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is talking to the apostle John. Revelation is the story of, of the end, what will happen when Jesus returns. And this is what he says. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and hell. So when I was a rising senior in high school, uh, the summer in between my junior and senior year, all me and my friends wanted to do was pull off a senior prank. Anybody else? Senior pranks? Yeah? All we wanted to do is we wanted to put goldfish in a pool, I don't know, or put dead fish in the vents, all these crazy stuff that seniors do as like, we're going to make our mark on the school. And so we were talking about it all summer long. We're going to break, break into the school and we're going to prank them and it's going to be awesome and everyone's going to love us. Who cares if we get in trouble? This is what we were set on. So pretty much every day of the summer, we would just talk and dream and brainstorm. What can we do to prank the school? So the administration obviously found out, and so they sat us down uh, the very first day of our senior year, and they said, hey, we know you guys are really set on doing something, just want to let you know you're not going to graduate if you do. Okay. <laughs> right, I'm 18, I don't care. <laughs> I do care, that's a lot. Uh, so I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? They're like, we, we, got, we got this doors locked, we got a security system, all that kind of stuff. There's no way you're getting in, don't even try it, it's not going to happen. Here's what the administration didn't know and what you don't know is that when I was in high school, I went to a small little Christian school who met at my church. And the summer in between my junior and senior year, I was an intern at that church. And interns get keys. Can't keep out the guy with the key. Right? You can't keep out the guy with the key. Church, you hear what I'm saying? If he has the key, you can't keep him out. And it says that Jesus has the keys of death and hell, so you can't keep him out. He's going to do it. The exit gates of hell will not prevail because Jesus has the key. He's got the key. He can do whatever he wants. So no one in the kingdom of darkness is outside of his reach. No one in the domain of darkness is outside of his reach. Listen, every friend that you feel like you've given up hope for, Every family member who you've said in your heart or your mind, there's no way they will ever trust in Jesus. Every person that you've invited to church a thousand different times that just keeps saying no, no, no. Everyone that you've written off, listen, they are not outside the reach of the one who has the key. Because he has the key. You can't stop the person with the key from getting in the building. That's how keys work. They turn and the locks become unlocked and people can go in and they can come out. And it says the exit gate of hell will not prevail because Jesus has the key. He has the key. Here's the good news for us this morning. What does this mean for us? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Paul is writing to a church in the city of Corinth and he says this, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He brought us back into relationship to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Here's what this means. We were all enemies of God. Right? All of us who trust in Jesus were at one time trapped in the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus came for us, and the exit gates of hell did not prevail. And he won us to himself. That's what reconcile means. It means we were separated from God. We didn't have a relationship with God. And Jesus brought us back into relationship with him. And then 2 Corinthians 5 says he turns us around and he sends us out as ambassadors of his kingdom as ministers of reconciliation, that he has entrusted, he has given to us. He says, hey, church, hey, my people, I'm gonna build my kingdom, and here you go. It's on you to join me in doing that. He says, I will do it, and I want to use you. I wanna send you, I want you to join me in taking the offensive attack of, of stepping out from the ropes and throwing gospel punches. I want to use you to join me in building my church. That's the invitation for all of us. As we fight our own sin, as we go to war with our own sin, as we step out into our, our offices and our workplaces, as we step out into our families and into our friendships, and as we step out into Pinehurst and, and into these neighborhoods around Two Notch, we are declaring, no, I am joining God in building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we go forward in confidence and boldness. We go forward empowered by the Holy Spirit, with him living and dwelling inside of us. Going, waging war, sharing the gospel so that others will come to know Jesus and true life in Jesus. It's the invitation for us this morning. The promise is that we can be absolutely certain that the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, So for the last two years, my wife and I have been uh, serving uh, with Midtown, I've been a church planning candidate. And so we've been here trying to learn what it means to, to plan a church, to do this in another city, in another context. And here's the reality. As, as I was praying through this message, this is what the Lord struck me with. If Matthew 16 isn't true, we don't plan a church. Right? If Matthew 16 isn't true, we don't ask people to join our team and uproot their lives and move to a new city for the sake of the gospel. Right? If Matthew 16 isn't true, then we don't sacrifice friendships and relationships and comfort and paychecks and everything that is so home about Columbia. We don't sacrifice that to go to a new city to tell people about Jesus if Matthew 16 isn't true. Right. Matthew 16 isn't true. Midtown Two Notch is a pipe dream. Right? It's, it's a fairy tale. If Matthew 16 isn't true, Midtown Two Notch doesn't happen. But if it is true. Right? If what Jesus says is true, if what he says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the forward advancement of the church, then we have no choice but to go plant churches, right. to go share the gospel. Right. Right? If, the, if the gates of hell truly will not prevail against the forward movement of the church, then that means Ant and the deacons and all of you guys can actually go into Pinehurst and proclaim the good news of the gospel. It means you can actually gather here on Sundays in an event hall and worship Jesus. It means you can celebrate and you can be life, life group together and you can be family together and you can repent of sin and push each other to repent of sin because Matthew 16 is true and you guys are going somewhere and Jesus says, no, 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 the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Be encouraged. What you do matters. It matters. We're in the process right now. We're building a team. We're asking people to come with us to start a new church. I need you guys to keep doing what you're doing. Because I don't know if you realize this, but as you guys love one another, as you serve your neighborhood, 
as you follow and pursue Jesus together, you're a blessing and example to us of, hey, this thing can, can happen. We can do this too. Right? I want to see a community like this that love each other and love Jesus taken to a new city so that other people will have baptism stories one day where they say, hey, I wanted this, but now I want Jesus. And we can celebrate that the gates of hell did not prevail because it's not prevailing here and we don't want it to prevail where we're going either. And Jesus says it won't. He's going to build his church. He's going to do it. He's going to invite people to know him and to walk with him. So let me land the plane for all of us this morning. The encouragement for us this morning is do not grow weary. Don't grow weary. Right? Matthew 16 is true. Jesus, for the last 2,000 years, has been saving people through his blood and his body given on the cross. And for years and years to come until he returns, he is going to continue to save people by the blood and body that he gave. So don't grow weary. Right? If you have to have another conversation and another conversation and another conversation, don't grow weary. If you have to invite that person for the one thousandth and one time, don't grow weary. If you're like, man, it just feels like I'm never going to fight this sin. I'm never going to put this sin to death. I'm never going to defeat this. I'm always going to struggle. I'm always going to be tempted. I'm always going to fail with this. Listen, church, do not grow weary. You're on the attack. Join God in the forward movement and advancement of his kingdom. He's going to build his church. And it feels hard and it feels tough. It feels like, what are we doing? We just keep trying. I just keep sharing and they're not interested at all. They just keep laughing at me. They just keep making fun of me. They just keep saying, there's no way I would ever believe in that silly Jesus myth. Why do I keep trying? Listen, because the gates of hell will not prevail against the forward movement of God's kingdom. So you can join him. Join him realizing that God invites you, but it doesn't depend on you. That God invites you, but he does it. That his spirit does it. And so you're invited to be free because of the grace of Jesus to just step in and say, hey, can I pray for you? Hey, I know I keep asking, but I really think you should come check out my church. Hey, I know I keep asking, but what do you think about God? Because you're freed up. It's not on you, it's on him. He wants to use you. That's the gift. That's the grace. Uh, every Sunday, when you gather, just like we do downtown, we take communion. We get a chance to take a piece of bread and dip it in juice. And the bread represents Jesus' body given for you and the juice is blood shed for you. And it's a chance to remember this morning, church, that the gates of hell did not prevail in your life, but you were one to Jesus because of the cross. Not only the cross, but because of his resurrection, that he is risen and ruling and reigning forever. And so as you take communion, remember, Jesus died for me. He won me to himself, and then he sends me back out to join him in the forward advancement of his kingdom. It's the invitation for all of us. As you take communion, let it tell your soul and remind your heart, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary. Let's pray together.